This is a podcast from Art and Reality, the role of visual culture in the post-independent state. This University College Dublin Symposium examined the role of visual culture in constructing and critiquing the Irish Free State and national identity in the aftermath of political independence. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October 2018 and was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art, History and Cultural Policy and NIVAL, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. The symposium was funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries. All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online. In this podcast, Irish Modernity in Fancy Dress, The Costume Balls of the 1920s, a paper by Elaine Sisson. Good morning, everybody. Um, Just to sort of say as a preamble that many of the images that I have gathered here today I think would have been really enjoyed by Nikki Gordon-Bow. So every time I find a new, fresh, fantastic image, I think Nikki would have loved that. In 1925, Maureen O'Brien, a student at Dublin's Metropolitan School of Art, won first prize at the inaugural Nine Arts Fancy Dress Ball for her, quote, charming gown of green velvet on which the Shannon meandered with its many tributaries. The coat of arms of Limerick was her breastplate and her electrically lit headdress was a replica of the much-discussed plan, unquote. For a contemporary audience, there was no need to be more specific because the much-discussed plan was, of course, the blueprint for the Shannon hydroelectric scheme yet to be built. I haven't managed to track down a photograph of O'Brien's outfit, but the power plant continued to be a popular fancy dress costume over the next few years. And what this whimsy displays is the topical engagement with contemporary Ireland. So you can see there, I just also have to say, many of these images... um, they're kind of placeholders because it's very expensive to, to reproduce original images. So these are taken uh, with my phone, basically. Um, but you can see here we have Walter Raleigh, <clears throat> Charles I, a rainbow, uh, Shake, and Miss Daphne Flood as the Shannon scheme, aptly named. So what I'd like to do today is to look at costume away from the conventional scenographic space of the theatre stage and to consider its performative role within a series of fancy dress balls in Dublin during the 1920s. Fancy dress is, of course, predicated on the importance of costume. It is, after all, fancy rather than everyday dress. That's at the heart of the enterprise. And what appeals to me about fancy dress costumes is that they are not just funny clothes. They are signifiers, cultural markers that are economic as well as designed objects. My interest in dress-up, as it was often referred to during this period, is informed by the significance of costume as a language and how the prevalence of costume balls in Dublin from the late 19th century into the 1920s and 30s reflects an evolution of social identity. Colleen McQuillan has argued that in the early years of the 20th century, quote, the popularity of wearing imaginative costumes signalled a reconceptualisation of the individual's relationship to the public sphere, which resulted in a newfound sense of political and artistic agency, unquote. The idea of fancy dress as a form of self-fashioning especially interests me in an analysis of Irish cultural modernity and is the focus of this paper. In particular, I'd like to argue for the fancy dress balls of the early free state as a manifestation of an emergent, even transgressive social identity coupled with artistic experimentation. There is in evidence a sort of playful optimism that is often lacking in historical analysis of the precarious years of the post-Civil War period. Masquerade as Bactinian anarchy has its roots in the vernal equinox, Mardi Gras, 
and became socially codified during the 18th century masquerade balls as forms of organised and controlled chaos and a culturally sanctioned antidote to highly stratified societies. In the 19th century, it re-emerges as the popular pastime for the landed classes, but its purpose and function is quite complex. And so in order to provide some context to my talk today, I have very generally and loosely divided the practice of dress-up, as it was often called, into three very general and roughly chronological categories attesting to intention and function. The first is historical narrative, including tableau vivant as forms of historical reenactment or reimagining. In Ireland, this is most closely associated with the late 19th century practice of the tableau vivant, across both imperial and nationalist forms of spectacle. And you will see here from the Alice Milligan National Spectacle and from um, Britannia, from the Children's Victory Ball in 1919, how these kind of, uh, this iconographic language is reproduced, uh, although in different kind of uh, contexts. Um, what we can see here is uh, participants represent um, a picture or tableau from the past, or indicate an abstracted idea of national or imperial sympathies, where the locale and context is often politicised, but it's understood collectively. So depending on what, where you are, you wouldn't, you, wouldn't, um, miss, you wouldn't mix these up. You would know which one is which. The effect is to create a spectacle or complete image rather than an expression of individual identity. For time and other reasons, I'm going to sidestep the issue of the historical pageants, of which there were many of this time, promoting diverse projects, um, from temperance, health education, to the history of Dublin. And if you're interested in this, I would refer you to the work of Catherine Morris and to Joan Fitzpatrick Dean. The second category concerns costume balls organised around philanthropic or charitable concerns. And to a certain extent, as there's evident from this photograph, there's a crossover between the participants or clientele of the first category, although there's a transition from historical to allegorical tableau vivant costumes towards the more whimsical. So nonetheless, during the 1914 to 18 war period, it was the tableau format continued to be utilised within fundraisers for the Red Cross and other kind of charitable endeavours. For example, to express solidarity and patriotism. Um, what I think is interesting about this image is that Ireland is uh, depicted as a Colleen, like the Colleen Bond image. Everybody else has fabulous national, um, national costumes, but Ireland is in this kind of um, ersatz sort of peasant costume, uh, which is a whole other... Uh, a whole other exploration in itself. Um, fancy dress, of course, was used to, uh, to, raise, to increase the appeal of fundraise, fundraising activities and to make um, serious public programmes feel like amusement, so the, the idea of raising money here. We can certainly consider class as an element here, um, the cosmopolitanism of display and the aesthetic cost of dressing up for thrills, as well as to where these events took place the Viceregal Lodge, Dublin Castle and other sites representing cultural and social capital. This happens in the Ivy Garden, it's the Alexander College fate from 1920. It's a fundraiser for a charity. And um, I think what's interesting here is you've got middle class women posing as sort of bohemians. Uh, the smoking is a good signifier in this relationship. Um, the third category is rather elastic. And it extends to fancy dress as an expression of modernity. To a certain extent, there's a little bit of crossover here. But this is the focus of my paper today. No longer do costume balls take place in Dublin Castle, the Vice Regal Lodge or other sites of social hierarchy, but they start to happen in hotels and sports clubs. <coughs> Crucially, this category emerges most strongly during the post-war period, the post 
First World War period. Though it transverses the revolutionary period into the early years of the Free State and throughout the 1920s and 1930s. There are a number of factors involved in understanding the relationship between costume and modernity. Certainly there was a fashion for dress-up in Britain during the 1920s, historically framed as an exuberant response to the end of the war, the Jazz Age, and we have here Miss Mina Darley dressed as jazz as early as 1920. But also dress-up is informed by changes to sexual mores and the increased social mobility of women. In Ireland, too, there was a vogue for fancy dress, but its popularity as a form of social expression may also be considered a response to the newness and modernity of being part of a new state. One of the most popular events, the Nine Arts Ball, um, became an amalgam of the annual Metropolitan School of Art Mardi Gras Arts Ball and a ball run by the United Arts Club. The Nine Arts Ball was named after the Nine Muses and inaugurated by the painter and president of the Royal Hibernian Academy, Dermot O'Brien. His extensive social and personal connect- professional connections guaranteed that the Nine Arts Ball became a major social fixture. In writing to his friend Hugh Kennedy, the Chief Justice, in 1924, O'Brien sought to support his support in hosting a ball along the lines of the Chelsea Arts Ball in London. So um, you can see here, this is an image from the first uh, Fancy Dress Ball in May 1925 at the Metropole Ballroom on O'Connell Street. Fancy Dress was compulsory, and in addition to prizes for best costumes, the evening also featured demonstrations of the latest dances, so it was a kind of a showcase. Reports from the first ball were glowing. Over 400 people in fancy dress attended, and Dermot O'Brien's family staged a theatrical coup of their own. They represented a tableau um, showing the voyage and return of O'Brien's brother's yacht, the Saoirse, and even that in itself indicates class here, um, with family members representing variously a penguin, a kangaroo, an ostrich, a monkey, and a bunch of bananas. The boat was greeted on its return to Ireland by O'Brien's daughter, the aforementioned Maureen O'Brien, dressed as, quote, young Ireland in the form of the Shannon scheme. From 1926 onwards, the Art Students Ball joined forces with the Nine Arts Ball. In truth, the participants in one were often the parents or the teachers of the other, evidenced here by Oswald Reeves, art tutor at the Metropolitan School of Art and also a member of the United Arts Club, and the horses made up of two students from the Art um, College. This made the event a much more lively and more cutting-edge affair, and consequently the ball moved further away from the genteel aristocratic whimsy of the philanthropic endeavour and towards something more modern and current. Throughout the 1920s and 1930s, the array of costumes did not disappoint. For example, at the 1926 ball, there was a sheikh, a bird of paradise, a Persian prince, Mr. Paul Henry, or H.J., and the O'Briens triumphed again with an entourage of the god Pan, in a goatskin, Professor Dermot O'Brien, or H.A., accompanied by a bacchanalian troupe of fawns. Some names of attendees are captured in the lists of winners, and the names are those you might expect. Artists and actors, but also some movers and shakers within the common Aguayle apparatus, judges, senators, civil servants. In his 1930 book, The Psychology of Clothes, John Flugel talks about clothes as an extension of the bodily self, as both armour and display. And Elizabeth Wilson extends this thought when she asserts that clothes can be a focus for liberation, a site of opposition, a complex signifier of gender and sexuality. And this is because she says, dress, quote, dress is the frontier between the self and the non-self. 
Bakhtin has shown us how carnivalesque inversions of roles and bodies were common to ancient festivals, producing a special kind of carnival laughter that is both regenerative and divisive. Derisive, I should say, not divisive. Um, so this laughter, and here we have Leo Whelan, um, art student and later obviously very well-known sculptor-painter, um, Nelson's pillar must have come down. 1927, of course, we see this through the lens of 1966, the Nelson's pillar, but at the time there was a big debate going on whether Nelson's pillar should go to come down and be re relocated to be a uh, companion statue in Liverpool to Wellington statue. So, in fact, he's speaking to here something about a debate that's going on. And then in Dublin Opinion, you can see... Um, a sort of a, a kind of a derision here about what artists do. Cartoons are really useful to uh, art historians and historians generally because they give us an indication of, of the in-joke or what was current or what was thought about at the time. I find them incredibly useful uh, sources. <clears throat> Laughter acknowledges and affirms, um, affirms both the inversion and its opposite at the same time. For Bakhtin, the function of the inversion is to create a parodic spectacle that once restored actually reaffirms existing social norms and mores. So, for example, dressing as a man or a baby or an animal when you're none of these things is safely contained within the world of make-believe. The costume balls are inherently a play on gender and identity, but also on history and the past. Historical and fictional characters, St. Henry VIII, Marie Antoinette, Old Mother Hubbard, constituted a mode of thinking that was actually quintessentially modern. This is a kind of play of history as pastiche. Randy um, Coppen notes, quote, through costume performance and sartorial practice, participants speak to each other about the past, about the present moment and about the future, laughing at authority and pomposity. In post-war Ireland, social um, hierarchies may no longer have needed dismantling, although the frisson of transgressive cross-dressing retained its erotic power. And I also kind of think there's something about ladies dressing up as shepherdesses and flirting with, you know, peasants or whatever. But the fashion for historically um, accurate costumes gave way to allegorical or conceptual reconceptions. And what we might call themes of embodiment began to appear. That is, costumes representing objects or ideas. This shift indicates a less literal approach to costume design, one predicated on ideas... Um, personal opinion and originality, rather than historical authenticity or reenactment. So the function of these new types of costumes was to celebrate the individual of kind of exceptional creativity, and who would win a prize and gain social recognition. So traditionally in the masquerade ball, it was the masked identity of the wearer that was the puzzle. <laughs> now the conceptual costume creates its own interpretive challenge. The costumes are modern precisely because of their non-literal and non-linear construction. They appear as artistic arrangements of garments, props and pieces of text and appropriate ideas of the collage on the abstract. The popularity of costume balls extended to the commercial and managerial sector also. They're not just playgrounds for the socially privileged to affirm each other's creative ingenuity. More frequently, fancy dress begins to take the form of corporate entertainment, such as staff dances and through such events as, you see here, the publicity club balls. Here, costume as product rec recognition becomes part of the emergent corporate industries of advertising and marketing. The emergent advertising industry, often referred to at this time as publicity, uh, begins to sponsor its own annual ball from 1925 onwards, really emulating the Nine Arts Ball and the, United, uh, the School of Art Ball. 
Members of the Publicity Club included major Irish manufacturing industries and businesses who were keen to promote the importance of commercial advertising, shops and large to medium-sized businesses. So we can see, I've been trying to kind of map these up with um, prize winners. And so we have um, <coughs> Lemon Sweets, Johnson, Mooney and O'Brien, um, BB Toffee, Morgan's Fruit Markets, Osram Slight. Some of the, the companies are still around. And these are from the Hugh Kennedy papers from UCD, whose wife, Claire Kennedy, was the judge at this particular this particular ball in 1929. And that's why the photographs, um, their publicity photographs, so they're particularly good and sharp. Um, so uh, what I could say is um, the advertising and publicity balls differed from the nine arts balls in one significant respect. It had really quite lucrative uh, prizes where costumes based on products and businesses could win large sums of money. So the prizes were sponsored by the companies themselves. To put it in context, the top prize of £15 in 1926, for example, would be close to £1,000 today. And overall, the prize fund of £200 would be worth over £13,000 today. Prizes were sponsored by key industries, including, as you can see here, uh, Lemons, Dunlop Tires, Easton's, Jacob's Biscuits, many more. It's clearly stated in the flyers that costumes must be worn, worn throughout the night, so you couldn't just show up, get the money, and, and go. And in fact, the judging it happens around 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning. And these, um, these balls went on all night. They didn't end until 4 or 5 o'clock. Samples of goods and souvenirs were also on offer. So the judges' reports suggested they were taken back as a number of attendees, 500 to 600 people in costume, but also at the ingenuity and humour of the costumes. And you can see more here. Um, you can have a look at those yourself. Uh, Cantwell's coffee, to Odal toothpaste, which I particularly like because it's a toothbrush and a tube of toothpaste, you can see. Um, I'm not quite sure what this character is. She's got a little dog and there's artificial flowers, Osram lights, the independent. Um, it's actually um, a building... Uh, the Irish, it's the Irish Independent Building, which I particularly like as well. Uh, Jacob's Biscuits, um, Jury's Hotel, and uh, Dublin Opinion is at the very end of the barrister. Um, so the heavy artillery is actually an, for an advertising company here. Um, what's interesting as well, if you look at the, the names and addresses of the prize winners were published in the papers, and what's interesting is that it, they really do represent a different, uh, slightly different class of people in the sense that the nine arts balls and the United Arts balls were very much artists and actors and they're quite upper middle class um, addresses. But many of the prize winners here are drawn from the suburbs of Mines, Fibsborough, Drumcondra, etc., suggesting a kind of a, a more, say, white collar engagement rather than kind of a, you know, aristocratic pursuit or kind of landed pursuit. Um, prizes were awarded for the best costumes representing any advertising character best advertising costume, best original advertising costume, in addition to best hair and best dancing couple. And the judges included Ernest Blythe from the Abbey Theatre and Charles Highland from the Gaiety Theatre, as well as W. Highland from the Connick Tribune and representatives from the Dublin Chamber of Commerce. So there's kind of an interesting crossover there. As you can see, costumes were often whimsical, highly complex and ornate, and demonstrate an interest in using the body as a playful exhibition space in which imagination replaced more straightforward impersonations of character. The balls popularised the practice of dressing as an idea, a polemical question or a non-anthropomorphic object, or more commercially, the embodiment of a product. 
Conceptual costumes instead constructed a language of signification, sartorial semiotics, if you like. It also presupposes a collective understanding of the products and the place they play in Irish cultural life. Eason and Jacob provided quotidian products, newspapers and biscuits, but getting the joke of the costume furthers a sense of shared recognition and connectivity. The creativity involved in making cannot be underestimated. Designing and making costumes offered artistic satisfaction, and there's a hierarchy between the hired and the made costume, with unusually the made object having a higher value. So this is kind of a mixture between a made and a hired... Well, I think it probably is a made costume. Articles in magazines and newspapers routinely described outfits that could be made inexpensively at home, thereby extending the practice to a greater percentage of the population. New techniques, particularly in the manufacture of crepe paper, meant that costumes could be made with little or no sewing. So crepe paper doesn't fray, and it can be stiffened with water and with glue, and it's cut into different shapes, because so it's, it's a quite a pliable material. And these kind of, um, this innovation is kind of mass-produced paper emerges around this period of time. Um, so there's much more room for experimentation. And in addition, we might say that the flimsiness of the homemade costume provides the possibility that it might tear or simply fall apart, giving unintentional opportunities for erotic display. So the success of the Dublin Balls prompted a similar enterprise by the Galway Chamber of Commerce. But the effects of the 1929 Wall Street crash meant by, that the advertising ball was cancelled by January 1932. By the time of the 29 crash, the 1930 ball had already, was already well underway and planned, so it did go ahead. But after that, um, in the paper, they, there is a sort of a report saying that they decided at the annual meeting of the publicity club that they could no longer sustain it, that it, it wasn't a commercial, commercially viable venture. The Nine Arts Ball was discontinued during the 1940s war years, but both balls reappeared in the 1950s. And by the 1960s, however, both kinds of balls, both the Publicity Ball and the Nine Arts Ball, had completely petered out. Anthea Jarvis maintains that one of the reasons fancy dress is no longer as popular as mass entertainment today, except for moments like Halloween, for example, is that dress generally is no longer as strictly codified as it once was. She says... Quote, the, opportun the opportunities to transgress its codes are not so readily sought out. So we don't actually need to, to do that because we can do that in our everyday dress. Pat Poppy argues that the vogue for fancy dress has now been displaced onto heritage displays and historical reenactments. And I think that is a proposition worth exploring um, in terms of the kind of uh, the real popularity of, of heritage display now and reenactment. Um, it's more and more popular. In conclusion, I'd like to draw attention... Oh, there's another one, sorry. This sham, we've got Shamrock Records here, you can see, Paddy Whiskey. Uh, the BB toffee that you can see just in here, that actually is made from toffee sweet wrappers. Um, and they're either silver or gold. So there's a real shimmy about that costume in particular. And also, it probably is quite mutable, I would say, that it's probably not very... Um, long-lived. But as you, as you go, you can see um, the variety. The Lemon Sweets is the Marie Antoinette figure, um, Irish maid, margarine. And behind them, in between, is the kind of interesting, I wish it was a better photograph of it, the Goddess of Speed, which is Chrysler, Renault Chrysler, uh, Constance Clarity, whose address is given as Galway, so she possibly came down, and she won first prize that year, so it was obviously worth her while to come. But you, you can just see her, can you see her where, where she is in, in there? Um, 
In conclusion, then, I'd like to draw attention to the way in which costume foregrounds the body. It allows the male and the female body to be publicly, willfully displayed. Yet, as Eva Monks has written, costume in one way or another is frequently looked through, around or over in scholarship. The fancy dress balls of the 1920s challenge us to think more expansively about the early years of the free state, where audiences go to the cinema as well as the theatre. They buy tyres, they use typewriters, and they operate within different systems of reference. And it makes me think about how the dialogic exchange that is constantly in flow between cultural forms, low and high, variety and cinema, literature and film magazines, fashion and costume, this it seems to me is a quintessentially modern endeavour. The blurring of high and low culture, the emergence of celebrity, the technologies of modernity, the production of costumes that contain references folded into each other. And just in conclusion, I would just sort of say this uh, strange couple is from uh, the School of Art Ball in 1931. And it strikes me very much, and just thinking about Fiona's, uh, you know, Judith uh, painting that sort of leaps to mind. As soon as I saw this image, I just thought of the Bauhaus. And I also thought about Soviet constructivism. So it seems to me that that is part of the language of this here. Uh, it's not acknowledged, particularly, you know, in the papers or in anything else. But I do know that Victor Penny um, was also, th there's, some, there's some crossover here with the UCD School of Architecture, because Victor Penny was an architect. Um, and I think I might have one last one just to leave you with, um, just in case you thought that the Free State was a place of joyless... Um, <laughs> Prohibition, uh, we have the, ro the Drogheda Roller Skating Carnival in January 1929. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Art and Reality, the role of visual culture in the post-independent state. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October 2018 and was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art, History and Cultural Policy and NIVAL, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. The symposium was organised by Roisin Kennedy and funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries. All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online. <laughs>